Uh, the sheets that were passed out has my outline for last night. Uh, you didn't have it last night, but you'll see that we covered that. And this morning we want to talk about a profile of the new song. We live in a day when uh, there's an awful lot of confusion, and the idea sort of is that there is no standard by which we can decide what kind of music the church is going to sing. I thoroughly disagree with that, and what I have to say this morning will, I think, point some direction for future uh, choices of our music. Now, I want you to look on page two. We're going to sing a new song this morning. Uh, this is about new songs. <clears throat> The reason why we should have a new song is because God is constantly turning bad situations into good situations, as I told you last night. That's the essential meaning of the word salvation, to salvage, to change something that's unfortunate into something that brings glory to God. And the reason why we should all be singing a new song is because God does that constantly. So we should have a song to memorialize the... the uh, salvaging experiences that are happening in our lives, and there actually should be some new songs written. In fact, that's usually when songs are written. They're usually written either during a very tragic time, and God delivers people from those situations, and then new songs are written. This song that I want to sing this morning on page two, which is the backside of page one, Father and Friend, Thy Light, Thy Love, uh, <clears throat> is a song that talks about God's sovereignty. And my favorite stanza here is the last stanza. Thy children shall not faint nor fear, sustained by this delightful thought. And what is the delightful thought? Since thou their God art everywhere, they cannot be where thou art not. It's a delightful song. Lowell Mason was a very important character in music, church music. I don't want to say a lot about him now. I might talk more about him later. But in the 1800s, there was a change took place in church music. And that change continued till we finally have what we have today. People like Lowell Mason realized that that change was taking place. And he and Thomas Hastings set out to keep church music stately and, and sober and worshipful. And he wrote just a whole series of delightful little melodies that were very simple. These, the, the most musically untrained person could learn it easily. And yet it was stately and beautiful. And this song is a, is a case in point. Uh, we remember him for writing songs like Joy to the World, uh, Hark Ten Thousand Harps and Voices, um, Rise Glorious Conqueror Rise. That just gives you a little bit of an example of the kind of delightful music he wrote, which is really wonderful music to sing, and he's saying what he was trying to do with that is to say you don't have to go down the road that church music is going. We can still have stately church music that's serious and worshipful and delightful to sing. And I think you'll find this little melody. He never ceases to amaze me. He can write the simplest little melody that you'd think any person could write, and yet you want to sing it. It's, it's just very beautifully done. Uh, this is very easy. Uh, I think we'll just sing it four parts right off. No, Father and friend, thy life, thy love, beaming through all thy works we see, thy glory. 
gilds the heavens above and all the earth is full of thee thy voice we to pure for mortals involved in clouds invisible rain as the Lord of life title this morning is Profile, the new song. Now, a profile is an outline, a contour. If you talk about a person's profile, you're talking about looking at the side of his face and the sort of the outline of his features. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And people like Lowell Mason understood what the profile of an enduring song should be. Now, you know, we say that we have eternal life. When I was a boy growing up, I heard preachers say, we have eternal life now. Now, usually when we think of eternity, we think of the future. But the emphasis always was we have eternal life now. And, of course, I'm an old English teacher, and I'm always trying to define words, and I think that started when I was very young. And so I would ask people, well, what is eternal about our existence now? And they would say, well, we have Jesus. Well, yeah, but what's, what's eternal about our life? I mean, what, what eternal quality do we have? 
And uh, if you ask people, you're a little bit hard put to put your finger on what that eternal quality is. Well, as I have lived my Christian life, I've learned to appreciate the permanence, the enduring quality of Christian living. You know, the Christian makes decisions today, and tomorrow he's still happy with that decision. A week later, he's still happy with that decision. Ten years later, if you'd say, if you had that decision to make over again, yes, I'd make it the same way. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, and in eternity, if we could look back, we'd say that was a decision that was right. And all the information and experience that I've had since, and my perspective even after I get to glory, would not change that. That was an eternal principle that I lived by. That was a decision I made that is, that is eternal. It's enduring. It lasts. It doesn't, it's not here today and gone tomorrow. It's not something that once I have additional information, I say, oh, I wish I'd have done. It's just not that kind of decision. Christian people are people who live by enduring qualities. Now, I know we don't do that perfectly. We're human beings. We make mistakes. But hopefully in the most important things in life, we make eternal decisions that a million years from now, with all our additional experience and perspective of eternity, we would say that was a good decision. While I was living on the earth, I lived out of an eternal principle. Now, I think that should apply to music. Now, we all know that music has its fads just like everything else. Many of the songs that are sung today will be gone tomorrow. They do not have an enduring quality to it. I'm talking about the music. The text, of course, is also the case. It's also the case with the text. But I'm talking about the music itself. But there are certain hymns that will never leave our hymn books. Come Thou Almighty King. I, while I was compiling my hymnal, I went through literally hundreds of hymnals. I think that song is in every book. That tune is in every book. Why? There's something about the, that piece of composition that has that stamp of eternity. Now, I don't want to say we're going to sing it in eternity. It probably won't endure that long. But it has, there's an enduring quality to that piece of music. On the other hand, popular music is, is designed to be obsolete. I mean, that's just the way it's made. It's, made. it's made for advertisement. It's made for commercial purposes. It's made for money-making purposes. It's a little jingle that everybody likes immediately. They tire of it. It's replaced by the next little jingle, and that's just the way popular music is. We don't want that. We don't want that in our churches because it's not enduring, and the text that goes with it will not endure because the text usually is sort of the same way. So there's a verse in the Bible, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32 says, the children of Issachar were men that had an understanding of the times and know what Israel ought to do. I've always been inspired by that verse. There are some people that can say right now something that a hundred years from now people say they had it right. They had an understanding of the perspective and were able to inform this decision so that it was a good decision. A lot of people don't have that perspective, and they sort of go wandering around and, and uh, do all kinds of things. But the children of Issachar, in this particular case, David had been king over Judah for eight years, and these children of Issachar knew that this was the time to anoint David and crown him king over all 12 tribes. And of course, history proved that to be a good decision. But these people understood it at a time when other people weren't quite sure. They knew what the signs of the times were. Now, <clears throat> we need to know the signs of the times because there are changes taking place. Lowell Mason saw this change coming way back in the early 1800s. 
and he did his part to keep it from going down the road it went, and I hope to do my part as well. So we'll be talking about that as we go on through the day. Music involves worship. And we, also had, we already had a very good discussion of what worship is. Let me give you a quote. You'll find it in the front of my hymnal. Here it is. To worship involves the whole person. So here's the quote. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, to open the heart with the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's a quote by William Temple, who was Archbishop of England. Let me quote that again. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, to open the heart with the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Singing is an act of worship. It's to be an encounter with God that changes the whole person because worship does involve the deepest and most comprehensive aspect of our persons. The word worship itself is the word worship. This was the original English word that got shortened uh, with this taken out. Worthship. So you see immediately that this has to do with values. And values are, are the deepest part of our spiritual personality. We often talk of Christianity in terms of morals, and that's certainly right. But this goes deeper than that. Morals has to do with what's right and wrong. Values has to do with what is most important. And I think you can see immediately that we've reached a deeper level when we talk about values. You turn to Hebrews chapter 11, there's nothing said in that chapter about those men's morals. At least I can't find anything in that chapter that says anything about that Moses was more honest or he was more generous or he was more uh, pure or Abraham. Nothing said about their morals. That chapter's all about values. And probably the most significant value statement in that chapter is when it says that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ something that a natural man would not want. He esteemed the reproach of Christ of more value than the treasures of Egypt. And Egypt had a lot of treasures. But Moses, he said, I'll take the reproach of Christ and let all the rest of it go. That is quite a value statement. And all of us have a number one value. That was his number one value. See, everything else went by the board. His number one value was the reproach of Christ. He saw that that had the eternal enduring characteristic stamped on it. And he said, that, I'll take that and everything else can go. It's of less value than that. Now, every one of us has a number one value in our life. Every one of us. There's a value that is number one. We might have other values that are important, but there's a number one value. And if you say, well, how can I tell what my number one value in life is? If you want to find out, you can. Go ask your wife what gets you the most excited. Because everyone connected with that number one value is a number one passion. And we all know what passion is. All right. So if you would ask your wife, what do I talk about most? What gets me the most excited? Or have you ever been in a crowd of people where they were discussing a subject, and then here was this person sitting off to the side, and he wasn't involved. He didn't seem to be interested. He didn't seem to have much personality or passion or anything. He just was sort of a sitting there. 
until you mentioned a certain subject. And all of a sudden, this guy had a mouth, he had a passion, he had information, he had stories, he had history, he could talk for hours on that subject. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but we've all been in those situations. Well, whatever that was, that was his number one value. That was what, if you please, he was worshiping. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. And if you followed Paul around, <laughs> that was the button. When you pushed that button, Paul became, he, he came alive. That's, that was where he drew all his life from Christ. Now, most people, if they were honest, who call themselves Christians would have to say, for to me to live is money, for to me to live is my business, for me to live is my vacation, for me to live is baseball, for me to live is fishing, for me to live... That's the thing that pushes their button. That's the thing that everybody knows they are most passionate about. Well, whatever that is, that is what we're worshiping. And the wonderful thing about songs is they nurture, they nurture... Christ, and all the values connected with our Christian testimony and experience, they nurture that as the number one passion in our lives, if they're the right kind of song. And so that's why it is so important that we sing the right kind of song. Now, you'll notice on your paper, I have quotes from the Greeks. Uh, they were secular people, of course, who understood sometimes something that Christians don't understand. You know, uh, uh, Jesus said one time in a parable, the children, of this, the children of this generation are wiser than the children of light. And uh, I want you to see what uh, Socrates, who probably is the most uh, well-known philosopher in all history, this is what he said. Let us write the words to the music of a nation, and we care not who writes its laws. Now, he is talking about the words. He's not talking about the music itself. But he's telling you that whatever people sing will have more influence over them than any laws that are ever made. I suggest to you that what has destroyed this country is its music. That's what has destroyed. Now, of course, there was a lot of other stuff going on, but it was the music that led this whole revolution that we've been involved in. The Beatles said the purpose of our music is to instigate rebellion and sexual freedom. The Beatles said that. And that's what we see. They were prophets in, in their own sense of the word. Plato said, now we're, we're talking now not just about the words. Plato, of course, is the student of Socrates. And he says, the introduction of a new kind of music must be shunned as imperiling the whole state since the styles of music are never disturbed without affecting the most important political institutions. And then Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, became even more specific. He said, music directly represents the passions or states of the soul. If one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. And the Greeks were very committed to this concept they were determined that every person, especially every boy, would learn to sing and play a lyre. And it was a, music was a major subject in their schools. And uh, I don't know if there are any Christian day school teachers sitting here this morning, but if I had it to do over again and were teaching in the classroom, uh, I would make music a major subject. Uh, you know, reading and math, and those are the major subjects. We had those every day, music twice a week, uh, and it sort of gets done however sometimes. 
That's, that's not the way it should be. Music should be elevated to one of the most important subjects because it's going to have the most influence, far more influence on those children throughout their lives than math or reading or English or history or science or whatever else is being taught. So, uh, <clears throat> John Ruskin, who was an American philosopher said, philosopher, said, music is the first and most effective of all instruments of moral instruction. Just trying to show you that this is extremely important that we concentrate on what kind of music we're going to have. Now, fortunately, we're talking about the new song. Did you know that we have a copy of the new song in the Bible? Does anybody know where it is? There's actually a copy of the new song. Nobody. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. It says in verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, and there we have the new song. Now, before we look at the new song, I'd like to talk a little bit about what is well known by everybody to be the most effective kind of and wholesome kind of communication, whether you take speech. Now, this is not music. This is just, this is text. But I suggest to you that there's a certain way that you compose things that they have the best impression. When I took speech in college, we had these principles I'm going to list on the board. Whether you take speech, whether you take composition, whether you take music up until probably 150 years ago, you're going to find these same principles of uh, communication taught. The first thing you have to have if you want a, 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 the best and most wholesome kind of communication, you need to have a theme. It needs to be clearly stated at the beginning, and if you are being taught composition or speech, they'll tell you. Right at the beginning, make it clear what you're going to talk about. What is the subject? What is the theme of this communication? You know, some people get up to talk, and uh, we've all heard messages like this, and they, they often have good points in them, and I'm not trying to be uh, disparaging. But if there's not a clear theme, if somebody just gets up and reads a text and sort of goes down and makes some comments after the service, Somebody says, what was the message about? Well, it was this. I'm not sure what the message was about. There were some good things said. But if there's a theme that everything's related to, you leave with an understanding of the theme. It's been effective communication. Uh, in order for that theme to re be remembered, there must be repetition. If something is said only once, probably it's not going to be remembered. It has to be repeated. It has to be said more than once. In fact, it has to be said throughout the message, that theme. Now, <clears throat> the problem with that, though, is if somebody just stood up and said the same thing over and over again, you know what the problem is. Everybody be bored. So the, the third principle here is variation. That theme must be varied for several reasons. One is to keep the interest of people. But even more important than that, the variation helps you to look at the theme from different angles and deepens your understanding and impression of the theme. And so the person who's uh, giving a talk will have point one. Uh, it's the first variation on the theme. And then there'll be point two. It's still on the same theme, but it's a different angle from on the theme. And then there might be a point three. 
And uh, so you're getting various angles, and under those points you might have, a, under each point you might have a story or a poem or a quote or a piece of statistic or whatever. There's just constant variation, but you keep coming back to the same theme. It's, be, it's repeating this theme in a different way, over and over and over again. And then, if it's done the way it should be, there is a conclusion that refers back to the theme that was introduced and wraps it all up in a... In a a poem or a song or a statement or a story or something that wraps it all up at the end. So if you have a clear theme stated, it's repeated often enough, it's not forgotten, it's varied so it's interesting and it is, uh, uh, gives many different angles and then you have a conclusion. You have a very, very, very good expression. Now, let's look at the new song in Revelation chapter 5. Let's see if it does this. It's always interesting to me that, that secular people, when they're really honest, <laughs> they usually come up with what God already told us. <laughs> and this is a case in point. Uh, God already showed us in this that this is how it's done. Let's look what it says here. Verse 9. Well, first of all, you have the four beasts. They perhaps represent nature. I'm not sure. You have the four and twenty elders, which represent uh, the church or God's people. <clears throat> and... Uh, they are singing this song. Thou art worthy to take the book. So the theme is that Christ is worthy. Now, what's the first variation of the theme? Thou art worthy to take open the seals thereof, <clears throat> for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, <clears throat> and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So the first variation on this theme, and the theme is being repeated here, the first variation on the theme is how, why he is worthy. It tells us the reason why he's worthy. Okay? It says, he's, he has redeemed us to God and has made us kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Uh, and that's a tremendous thing that he did. My, he is really worthy because of that. Then we have the angels joining. 10,000 times 10,000. So this thing is building up. <clears throat> and next we have a variation on the theme. See, worthy is the first word here. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So we're still talking about his worthiness, but now instead of saying why he's worthy, we're finding out how worthy he is. And so he builds up all these words to show us how worthy he is. Still on the same theme. And now every creature joins this choir. It's quite a choir. It's, a, it's everything that's in the sea and everything on the earth joins this choir. And now we have the conclusion. It tells how long his worthiness shall endure. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And we have the theme concluded. But you see, there's a theme follows down through. We have repetition, we have variety, and we have a conclusion. And... <clears throat> If you look on your paper, I have it uh, explained as the sonata form. A sonata in classical music is three or four movements in contrasting forms. <clears throat> you have the exposition, the theme presented. Christ is worthy. He's redeemed, regenerated, and included us in his reign. We have the development. If you talk to classical composers, these are the three terms they use. You have the development of the theme in a new form. Christ is worthy, sevenfold praise to the Son. You have the recapitulation, which is the conclusion. 
The theme is restated. Christ is worthy, full, 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 fourfold praise of all creation forever. And so <clears throat> when you have that kind of communication, you have a, a tremendous impression made and, and it's something that will endure. Now, what I want to do is I want you to take your hymnals. I didn't bring a copy here. This is, is, there, is there an extra hymnal here somewhere? Yeah. Uh, I want you to turn to number one. I'm sorry, I have a copy of it in my notes. I want you to turn to number one, <clears throat> and I want you to look at this hymn. <clears throat> Come thou almighty king, I've already told you that this, this has passed the test of durability. This has been around <clears throat> since the 1700s. It's... 200 years, uh, 300 years later now, and we're still singing this hymn. Everybody's still singing it in every church except for a certain group of people that have laid the hymnals aside and aren't singing these songs anymore. Let's look at what it does. Let's, what, what is the reason why you could sing this song every Sunday? <clears throat> and it'd be a long time, if ever, that you would get tired of it. You, you could just sing this song and sing this song and sing this song. If you sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul, five Sundays in a row, you'd have people complaining. Why? What is the difference between this song and that type of... Now, I didn't say that was a bad song. I will have some comment to make on those songs later. It's not, that's not a bad song. You can sing that occasionally if you want to, but you can't sing it every Sunday. It will not last. It will not be good enough. This song, there's something about it Subconsciously, I'm going to tell you things you never thought about in relation to this song, but it's because of those things you never thought about that makes this song a durable song because it has these qualities. The little theme that's introduced is so me do. Now, a hymn isn't very long. <laughs> you don't have much time to do all of this in a hymn. And some hymns do it better than others. This one I have judged probably to do it about as well as any hymn that we have in our repertoire. So here we have this little theme. So me do. All right. Then we have we have a little structure that goes like this. It goes scale wise up and down the scale. Now I want you to notice that that happens throughout the song. Uh, we have it in the last part of that first line. Do you see how it goes up? Do re mi fa so fa mi re do. We have that little up and down scale wise progression. Then we have the theme. So so that's repetition. You see that? Do, re, mi, do, ti, do at the beginning of the first score. A score is one line, okay? At the beginning of the first score, we have that little up and down uh, the scale, and then we have it, uh, sort of an enlarged version of that at the end of the, uh, that score. Then we have the theme again, so, mi, do. But it doesn't do the same thing. Instead of going up to that little, that little thing, it goes down to a so. Then we have that little thing twice. You see that? That little scale-wise progression. Only now it's not do, re, mi, it's re, mi, fa. And it goes up and down. And then we have the theme inverted, do, mi, so. But it keeps on going. <laughs> the highest note is in the soprano, that law. Do you see that law in the third score? That highest note is in the soprano. And then we have the highest note of the tenor there at the end of the song. So we have just a, a double conclusion. And when you're finished singing this song, you have a feeling that it all hangs together according to that pattern. And that's why you can sing the song over. It doesn't have too much repetition to be boring. The repetition is always varied. 
and the song goes somewhere and it has a conclusion. And you feel that build up and you feel satisfied when, it, when you're finished singing it. And that's why the song is as durable as it is. Let's, let's, let's sing the whole thing. Uh, this is one of my favorite songs. You literally could sing number one in your hymnal every Sunday and I would be worshiping. <clears throat> Domiso, come thou almighty king. Help us thy name to sing. Here's the theme. Help us to praise. A little repetition. Father all glorious. Again, Father all victorious. Come and reign over us, ancient of days. Come thou incarnate word. Gird on thy mighty sword. Our prayer attend. Come and thy people bless and give thy word success. Spirit of holiness on us descend. Come, holy comforter, thy sacred witness in this glad hour. Thou who almighty art now ruling Depart, spirit of power, to the great one in three, eternal praises be, and severmore, his sovereign majesty, may we in glory see, and to eternity of and of. Now, you notice on your outline, it says a memorable and dominant melody. That is important because the Bible always defines song in terms of melody. I have some scriptures here. Isaiah 23, 16 says, make sweet melody, sing many songs. Isaiah 51, 3 says, the Lord shall comfort Zion. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Amos 5, 23 and 24. Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy words. Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. So when you're talking about songs, you're talking about melody and what I have described I was describing the melody. Uh, one of the problems with music of lesser uh, quality is they don't have that kind of well-structured melody. They often have maybe a, a harmony that gets you in the first singing, but it doesn't have a, a, a really good melody and often doesn't lead to a very good conclusion. So I want you to turn back to that little Lowell Mason song that we sang. Would you get, take your sheets? Did Lowell Mason do this? Yes, he did. <clears throat> he understood what I'm saying, and that's one of the reasons he was objecting to church music, because it was becoming more repetitious, with less variety, with a weaker conclusion, with more emphasis on the rhythm sometimes than on the melody, and more emphasis on the harmony, and he saw that that wasn't the way to go. In fact, I'm going to make a comment 
what I just said was describing the gospel song, and I have more to say about the gospel song later. It's not a bad song, but it was the first step down the road we went with our music with too much repetition, too much emphasis on the rhythm, not enough variety, and not a good, conclu- not a good enough conclusion. It, it, all of that was weakened in the gospel song. And there was a reason why it happened. I'll explain that. It's a historical thing that happened. And uh, we're not condemning those songs, but we have to understand that we must not let those songs replace the quality church music that has been written for 2,000 years. We must not let this lighter music replace that. And that's what Lowell Mason was concerned about. Now, what did he do in this little song? I want you to look at it. His little theme is three notes that are the same. A half note followed by two quarter notes on the same note. Father and, look at the second half of that. Beaming through, and then we go down to do, 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 and then we have ray, ray, ray. That's his little theme. Okay, he varies it, but he repeats it. And notice, this doesn't do it as well as come the almighty king. But notice his highest point in the soprano is at the end, and his highest note in the tenor is at the end. So this song has its little theme. It has a little bit of variation. It goes somewhere, and it comes to a good conclusion. And that's why this song will be more durable than those other songs, because it does, it does everything a, a piece of music is supposed to do according to uh, understood principles of good expression. I want you to turn now to number 11 in the church hymnal. Great God, indulge. This is a very interesting song. We have a theme introduced there. So, me, do, la. And then it goes down uh, scale-wise and up-scale-wise. And if you go to the end of the first score, it does the same thing with different notes. T, do, the first uh, uh, one is la, do, la, t, and this is re, do, re, mi, okay? And then we have something else in there, and then he comes back with his theme. But this time, it doesn't continue the way it did the first time. It keeps going up toward the conclusion. Do you see what's happening there after he uh, uh, does that repetition at the end of the second score? Thy glories that compose thy name is the same as the notes at the beginning. But it doesn't do then what it did at the beginning. It goes up and heads toward its conclusion. And then it has an amazing conclusion. The highest note in the soprano is there at the end. The highest note in the tenor is there at the end. And then there's another uh, climax in this song. And that is we have a dissonant note above make. You see the soprano sing re and there's a me. And that alto note resolves. Okay, that dissonance resolves into uh, harmony. And so you have those three sort of like bursts of of, uh, uh, high points in the song. There's also a dissonant note before that, above two. And so this this song has probably the most uh, spectacular ending of any song I know that we sing normally. I want you to hear this. Altos, I warn you, if you do not sing that alto at the end, that that dissonant note, I'm going to be disappointed. I, I, that, that's the high point in the song for me, is the resolution of that dissonant alto note. And very few people do it well. So now I've really set you up. Let's, <laughs> right. I want you to listen to how this song goes somewhere. It has that little repetition, uh, those little uh, scale-wise things at the, in the first score. Uh, it has uh, 
Uh, the theme repeated, but it goes toward the conclusion at the end, and then it has this fabulous conclusion. And it's the reason why my uncles who left the Mennonite church years ago occasionally say to me, do you folks still sing number 11 in the church hymnal? <laughs> Even though they left our faith, they still remember that, the song. And I think they're remembering the music. I think they're also remembering the words. But the music made a deep impression on them, and they've never forgotten it. And, and I'm telling you why. It wasn't a little ditty that had lots of repetition and not much variety that didn't really go anywhere or have much of a conclusion. It had everything it was supposed to have to make the deepest impression. Let's sing it. Does all great God indulge my humble claim? Thou art my hope, my joy, my rest, the glories that compose thy name. Stand up. I heard it altos, you did it right. Some of you did it right. Okay, let's do it even stronger on the second one. So, so, the reason why that hymn appears in every Mennonite hymn book since it was written. Would you turn to, oh, I didn't write down the number, Rise, Glorious, Conquer, Rise. Could somebody give the number for that one? <clears throat> now, this is a Lowell Mason song. And this is a very interesting song because, what's the number? 137. <clears throat> now the little theme of this song is what you see above conqueror rise. You have a dotted quarter with an eighth note and a little scale-wise progression that just goes up and down, okay? You see that in uh, the end of the first score, Native Skies. You see it in the second score, Many a Fold. You see it in the last score, Backward Rolled. But before e each of those, or some of those, you have a, a little stepwise progression. Do, Mi, Do, and then you have So, La, So. And then you have So, Ti, So. And then you have Ray, Me, Ray. And then another variation that's introduced in here, and unless you play a piano, you probably didn't think about this, but there's a key change. Rise, glorious conquer, rise is in the key of C. Into thy native skies, assume thy right is in the key of G. And then it goes back to the key of C. So you have that variation. Then you have sort of an inversion of the theme, uh, and we're in many a fold. Uh, and then you have it built to its conclusion with a high note in the soprano and a high note in the tenor. I'm explaining to you why these songs endure, why these songs have the stamp, may I use the word, of eternity on them, although I think the songs in eternity are gonna be much better. I think the Hallelujah Chorus in eternity is gonna sound like Mary Had a Little Lamb. But anyway, um, it, it, has, it has that permanent stamp on it. It has, it has these qualities that will make it endure. And serious-minded Christians who love things that are solid like things that endure. They don't like things that endure. They have a passion for things that endure. That's why some of the changes that are taking place in our church are such a grief to me because they're time-honored, confirmed concepts of life and lifestyle that have stood the test of time that people without any thought are just discarding like that. That's disappointing to a person who really appreciates the quality that we're talking about. Let's sing this. Rise, glorious, conquer, rise. Try to listen for that key change 
that starts into thy native skies, and then listen to the key change back again to end where in many a fold. You probably never listened to, for it before, but you'll hear it if you listen for it. Rise, glorious conquer, rise into thy native skies. Can you see again? And where in many a fold the clouds are backward rolled, pass through those gates of gold and rain in light. Victor or death and hell, chair you bigly. And swell the pain. Angels as all heaven inspire each angel sweet. His lyre and claps his wings afire. The lamb once slain. Enter in God. God Serpent down, blow the full trumpets, blow wider, your poor ghost throw, save your triumphant, go and take thy crown. Lion of Judah, hail. Age, Lord of the rolling years, claim for thine own the spheres, but with thy and tears thy heritage. Now, you look at the songs that have endured, and I think I can almost guarantee that you're going to find, even in a song like Blessed Assurance, you're going to find a little bit more of that than what you find in the lighter gospel songs, to the extent that a song adheres to this basic concept of composition. To that extent, the music has more of an enduring quality. Now, I want you to look at the next point I had on my outline. <clears throat> Elements of good music. Melody is the personality of the song. I showed you that the scriptures usually say that. Good melody has repetition and variety. It has interesting intervals, accidentals, chromatics, and so on and so forth. And we are not going to discuss what that all is, but that's what good melody has. Then it has a rich and varied harmony. It supports the melody, but it never dominates. Your soulish music basically appeals with its very, very, very emotionally charged harmony. Uh, but if the harmony dominates the song, it also will not have the qualities we're talking about. It should support the melody. And then it should have a subtle rhythm. You know, our bodies are rhythmical, but how many of you, when you were sitting here this morning, are very conscious of your heartbeat, you're conscious of your breathing, you're conscious of all the other rhythmic things that are happening in your body? How many have been sitting here just constantly, just aware of all of that? Well, if you were, you should go home because you're sick, probably. Uh, and if a song makes you, calls attention to the, the beat, it's a sick song. I have a, a friend who was the, uh, one of the music, uh, in fact, she was almost the head of the music department at Shippensburg University. She comes to our singings and enjoys the singings. And she just shakes her head. She says, the beat has swallowed up the song. It basically has dominated the song. It's obliterated everything a song is supposed to be. And so that's the uh, thing about the rhythm. The rhythm should be the least prominent part of the song. Every song has a rhythm. 
to it. Although I will say this, the church has always been scared to death of rhythm. I, should say, I shouldn't say always. It hasn't been in the last 150 years. But before that, for a thousand years, the church did not let its people sing anything but plain song. And plain song was unmetered. It had no beat. It was like a chant. Because the church was afraid that if you let the beat come out and you metered your music, it would appeal to the bottom half of the body, not the top half. I'm being pretty blunt. They did not want dance music in the church. Were you aware that when the pianist came in, and I don't want any instruments in the church, but when the piano replaced the organ or came in alongside the organ, there was a great outcry in the evangelical churches because the piano is a percussion instrument. And it came in with the gospel song. It, it, this all fit together. It came in with the gospel song because the gospel song had more repetition. It had a stronger emphasis on the rhythm. And so they brought in the piano to emphasize the rhythm of the gospel song. And it was protested against, and people finally got used to it. So the rhythm is the biggest problem with the music today. It emphasizes the part of the music that should support the melody. Anyway, so much, I'm on my bully pulpit now and I could talk a long time, but we'll just leave that. And then it has a satisfying conclusion, often builds to a high point, then resolves. Music doesn't tell a story different from the words. You know, some of the songs we sing sort of tell a different story than the words. Listen to this one. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> or down at the cross where my Savior... Is that how you want to sing about the cross? I'd sooner sing, when I survey the... How many heard the difference? See, we've done all this and we don't think about it. The, that... That melody, it's not in my book. I don't like that song. I like sort of the theme of it, glory to his name. I like that, but I don't like the way the music jars on the, on the so sober sentiments of Christ's crucifixion. And if we're not careful, we do that. The music should not tell a different story than the words. And then we should have a text that challenges the whole man. Would you turn to 32 in your hymnal? I don't know why. I did not bring a hymnal up here, but I will borrow this for this. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying we should get paranoid about every song in our hymnal, but just keep these things in mind and, and, and uh, be like the children of Issachar. Say, now, wait a minute here. Uh, let's, let's be aware of what's happening. And if we're going to use certain songs, let's be aware of what they are. Let's use them with discretion. Let's not let the gospel song and everything that has happened since that obliterate this other music and a whole 2,000 years worth of history of song. Let's not let that happen. All right, Eternal Father, when to thee. This has a tremendous uh, melody that fits everything that I just told you. <clears throat> we won't analyze that, but I want you to see the text because <clears throat> these good melodies usually attract to them a very, very good text that's meaty, that you can dig into it, you can think about it all week. The gospel song usually has a very simple little theme. It's, it's blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, we're all happy that we have such assurance in Christ. That's good. It's a good song. It should be sung occasionally. But you won't sink your teeth into it like this one. Look at this. Eternal Father, when to thee, beyond all worlds by faith I soar. Before thy boundless majesty, I just stand in silence and adore. You are so far above human beings that all they can do is just stand in silence. 
But this awesome, transcendent, almost unreachable God has chosen to stand beside us. Look at this. But Savior, despite all of what we just said in the first verse, thou art by my side. I even hear your voice. I can see your face. You're my friend, my daily guide. You're over all, but you're with me. The word Emmanuel means that, God with us. But it gets better. And thou great spirit in my heart. So it's God standing beside me and now inside me. Thou great spirit in my heart dost make thy temple day by day. The Holy Ghost of God thou art, yet dwellest in this house of clay. Blessed Trinity in whom alone all things created move or rest. High in the heavens you have your throne, but you also have your throne within my breast. That is a good song. We have an excellent piece of music. We have a wonderful text that is deep. And those two together make a song that will continue to make a very, very strong impression on our hearts every time it's sung. Let's sing this song. Why don't you stand? Though eternal Father went to thee beyond all worlds by faith, thy sword before thy bow, blessed majesty, I stand in silence and adore. Now I would like for the tenors to sing the melody and the sopranos to sing the high tenor, the altos and basses sing your regular parts. Tenors. But Savior, thou art by my side, thy voice I hear, thy face I see. Thou art my friend, my daily guide, God over all, yet God with me. Now I want all the tenors and all the sopranos under the age of 20 to do what we just did and the rest of you go back to your regular parts. Already and thou great speed. Dost make thy temple day by day the holy God, God art yet dwellest in this house of clay, blessed Trinity. In whom alone all things created move or rest. High in the heavens thou hast thy throne, thou hast thy throne within my breast. You may be seated. The contemporary song of the day just simply does not do that. I want you to turn to number 18.
Adelaide Proctor was a frail woman who was increasingly ill throughout her life and died at the age of 39. And she wrote this tremendous song, which is a testimony of how she viewed life through all of that painful experience. And this is what she says. My God, I thank thee. And by the way, this song uh, is, is written with a tremendous melody as well. My God, I thank thee who has made the earth so bright, so full of splendor and of joy, beauty and light. So many glorious things are here, noble and right. She says the beauty of the earth is only a reflection of the moral nobility and rightness of God's creation. Isn't that a tremendous thought? That when we look at nature, we see that, that what God means when he, when he wants things morally to be noble and beautiful and right, everything just the way it's supposed to be, okay? I thank thee too that thou hast made joy to abound so many gentle thoughts and deeds circling us around that in the darkest spot of earth, there's some of it. <laughs> to me, that's just a tremendous thought that, that God filled the earth with so much joy that you can't find a place in the world where there isn't any. That's just so abundant that it's, even the darkest place is a little bit of it. Now here's this sick woman writing this third stanza. I thank thee more that all our joy is touched with pain. How in the world could you say that? I thank you, Lord, that you've touched all my joy. Just about the time I th I'm really rejoicing, there's a stab of pain. Why would you thank God for that? Well, she explains. I thank you that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain. So, here's the reason. That earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. But see, what most people do with the happy events in life is they go off and become lazy and they pursue that to the exclusion of everything that's right. And she says, I'm glad we have joy, but I'm glad there's a little touch of pain there to keep us in touch with reality. That it prevents us from relaxing into ignoble ease, but teaches us to act rightly in the midst of our joy. To me, that's one of the most profound thoughts anybody ever gave us in poetry. I thank thee, Lord, though, that thou hast kept the best in store. We have enough, yet not too much, to long for more. A yearning for a deeper peace, not known before. So God doesn't give us too much. He keeps us moving deeper and deeper into reality. We don't have too much joy to keep us here. We, we're always looking for more. I thank thee, Lord, that here our souls, though amply blessed, can never find, although they seek, a perfect rest, nor ever shall, until they lean on Jesus' breast. Now that is worship. That instructs the mind. The song involves our emotions. It informs our imagination. Our minds can continue to think on those thoughts. It touches our will. We want to commit ourselves to what it says. It just does everything that a good song is supposed to do. Let's sing this song. Oh, so. My God, I thank Thee who has made the earth so bright, so full of splendor and of joy, beauty, and light. So many glorious things are here, noble and right. 
I thank thee too that thou hast made joy to abound. So many gentle thoughts and deeds circling us round that in the darkest spot of earth some love is found. I thank thee more that all our joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours that thorns remain. So that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast kept the best in store. We have enough and not too much to long for more. A yearning for a deeper peace not known before. I thank thee, Lord, that here our souls, though aptly blessed, can never find, although they seek a perfect rest. Nor ever shall until they lean on Jesus' breast. Now for a contrast. Cling to the Bible, though all else be taken. Lose not its promises, precious and sure. Souls that are sleeping, its echoes awaken. Drink from the fountain, so peaceful, so pure. Cling to the Bible. That song does just what it's supposed to do. One theme, uh, a pretty rousing impression, but you would not want to sing that every Sunday, I don't think, because it does not, either in the text or the music, really adhere to those as well as it could or should. But it's a song I like to sing, but I don't want to sing it more than maybe twice a year. <laughs> At just the right time. <laughs> it's not a bad song. But I'll leave you with that, and we'll talk more about music in the next session. Thank you for your attention. I'm sorry this got a little bit long. <laughs>